0: I'm very excited to see the beautiful things that you make and experience this next year. I double that. And here's to dropping shit on the sea train and turn that shit into
2: art. Hey.
0: <laughs> to this, to my beautiful friends. <laughs> to not succumbing to distractions. Oh, is that what we're calling them now? Oh, see, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. What we're not going to do is discuss my sex life overboard Day cocktails. Oh, not going to do that cliche. It's too bad. And stop seeing everyone's success as my fail. Hey, everyone. This is Represent, and I'm your host, Aisha Harris. Coming up in a bit on today's episode, we've got a very interesting conversation with Rada Blank, a writer and producer on Spike Lee's Netflix series, She's Gotta Have It. Now, I know what you're thinking. We just talked about the show last week when my very smart and funny friend Aaron Evans of Mike.com joined us in the studio. But when you can post some of your queries and hear about the subject straight from one of the creator's mouths, you don't pass up the opportunity. So stay tuned to hear what Rada has to say about working with Spike, as well as some of the criticisms of the show. But first... We are in the midst of the holidays. Hanukkah is in full swing as of this recording, and you've probably gotten too many holiday parties to attend. And I've got my Christmas playlist running 24-7, bopping to the amazing Nusia album and the Chance the Rapper slash Jeremiah Christmas mixtape. But of course, the holidays are not all fun and games. They can also be problematic, as my first guest Slate's Christina Cotterucci points out in a piece she wrote this week on Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Welcome back to another edition of Prewoke, Christina. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks. Uh, it's funny this this post kind of uh, came to be based off of a Slack conversation uh, some of us Slate employees were having earlier this week, and I think I might have mentioned that I've I've watched Rudolph many times. I actually watched it last week. Uh, had it on the background while I was doing some other stuff, and uh, I've always known the the whole theme of it is pretty problematic like the lesson you're supposed to learn but I guess I never really thought much about it Um, so can you talk a little bit about what makes Rudolph so um, not okay necessarily to show to your kids in 2017?
1: (laughs) Yeah it's kind of funny because um, as I've been sort of poking around the internet for this it seems like it's a conversation that comes up every year around December and it has for the past like Seven or eight years, I guess, since talking about problematic stuff on the internet became a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the general gist is that the story, the moral of the story, is not really a moral you'd want any kid to learn. Which is that if somebody has something different about them, they're not really deserving of respect until those differences are needed because you know the community's in trouble. So someone's not really valuable until. They're the thing that makes them different can can benefit everyone else. Um, and, you know, the the 1964 Rankin-Bass stop-motion Rudolph production, which I think is the one that most kids of the past couple generations have watched, it has plenty of like old school sexism, what I consider to be kind of like funny sexism almost like benign because it's so ridiculously (laughs) sexist like the little reindeer girls don't get to pull the sleigh they just kind of bat their eyelashes while the other little boy reindeers jump around they have characters saying things like you know this is man's work like women stay home and like let's get the women safely back to their caves and stuff like that um but generally, it's just, like, the idea that the reindeer who bully Rudolph and Santa, who's the lead bully, which I was surprised when I watched it this year, I didn't remember the fact that Santa was a huge jerk and kind of, like, egging the reindeer on and telling Rudolph's dad that he should be ashamed of his son for having a red nose. No. <laughs> should be ashamed of yourself. What a pity. He had a nice takeoff, too.
0: Is this the part where I jump in and say he's basically the Trump of
1: 1964? <laughs> <laughs> he totally is. And he's uh, really immature and childish. Like, the elves write a really sweet song for him. And he just kind of sulks and slouches and grumbles through the entire thing while Mrs. Claus is trying to, like, make the elves feel good about their creation. Um and then he's, like, complaining about the elves. He's demeans Rudolph. And then finally, without even apologizing for the bullying at the end, he just says, like, you know, Rudolph, you can be useful now. Come and guide my sleigh. But And that's after telling Rudolph, like, tone tone down your nose, please. It, it's, like, too bright. That's sort of what makes him realize that Rudolph could benefit him is, like, he's about to insult him about his nose.
0: Yeah, I— <laughs> All of this I, I it's I feel so bad because I've, I've I've processed all of this in the last few years I, I watch Rudolph every year um, it's one of my staple uh, uh, holiday shows that I go to every year that Charlie Brown Christmas you know, a few other things and I've always known in the back of my head as an adult that all of these things are really just like, kind of gross and icky and especially the fact that santa is such a dick is like (laughs) the biggest surprise but to have you sort of crystallize it in that way and one thing you also know is that You can also, some people read it as a sort of allegory for gay people. Mm -hmm. I think it'd also be read as an allegory for, like, anyone who looks different or is different in some way, but especially gay people because the the characters, Rudolph and um, Hermie, is that his name? The dentist who who wants to be a dentist. (laughs) They seem to code as, like, very effeminate or, like, stereotypically
1: gay. Oh, yeah. And Hermie the elf in particular, he's got, like, He's the only elf who has any hair coming out of his cap. And it's this very well-coiffed swoop of hair that I think is like a pretty popular gay hairstyle for all genders even now. And the voices that they use uh, have a, a bit of a what you might call a, a gay affect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's the fact that Rudolph's dad, um, Donner, basically – creates a closet for rudolph to crawl into like oh if you're gonna go out and fraternize with these other reindeer cover up this red nose with this like black cap that i made and then once once you know he's outed because the cap falls off everyone ostracizes him and that's when santa says donner you should be ashamed of your son And it's like, that's exactly, I mean, it couldn't be a clearer allegory for gay people being shoved into closets and and being encouraged to go to like, conversion therapy. Um, Of course, this was in 1964. So who knows how, you know, deliberate that was. But I don't know, like people in creative professions often skew gayer than the general population. So it could have been.
0: Right. And I mean, the whole Hermes whole thing is that he doesn't want to be an elf. He wants to be a dentist. And that's frowned upon. Not that I mean, being a dentist doesn't make you gay by any means. But like, it seems like (laughs) he's choosing a profession that everyone else around him would never do or like finds uh, uh, inappropriate. (laughs) Even though it's like, you know, everyone needs everyone needs a dentist. And
1: also the fact that um, Rudolph and Hermes sort of both get ostracized from their communities and, like, form their own sort of chosen family with the other misfit toys uh, in this, like, ghettoized snow land uh, reads as a really strong gay signifier to me.
0: Yeah. I mean, in the end, it it is a very, very terrible (laughs) lesson to learn. It it kind of uh, aligns, I think, with the idea of, like, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and, like, don't Mm -hmm. complain uh, until you've, like made a way for yourself or you've you've proven your worth. Uh, I mean, do you think that we should be not showing this to kids anymore? Or is this the type of thing, you know, I, I just wonder, like, how much of it is actually being absorbed by a kid um, as, like, yeah. these terrible lessons? I don't know if there's
1: an answer, but, like, what do you think? That's a good question. I think um, I've been reading some Facebook posts from parents who have been discussing this, and a lot of people have said, you know, we watch the movie, we talk about what the lessons are, and we talk about where the movie might have missed the mark. And so, the the parts of the movie that might end up, you know, teaching kids a, a poor lesson or a less I, less than ideal lesson, um, it gives up parents an opportunity to talk to their kids about, well, you know, it was messed up that the that the bullies never apologized to Rudolph, and maybe. Rudolph shouldn't have felt obligated to perform labor for the people who emotionally abused him for so long. And maybe he should have confronted them. Or, you know, maybe he shouldn't have gone back at all. Or, you know, his parents came and apologized to him, but Santa never did. And that was messed up of Santa. Um, So I don't think that necessarily showing it to kids would be uh, a bad thing to do around the holidays or, or problematic in and of itself. It is a fun story. And I think, you know, the the lower level lesson is, like, people with differences are okay. Uh, so I think when I was a kid, that was the lesson I felt like I tur- took away from it, that, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe people, if you're being bullied now, it won't always be that way. And and someday people will see the good in that, in in you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that as well. And I also just think, uh, going back to the idea that Trump— Very much embodies Santa or this version of Santa in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Ranger. Uh, considering that it's impossible to shield kids today from everything Trump says anyway, it seems like even more a perfect opportunity this year to use it to say, like, does this remind you of anyone? And if it does, (laughs) what are the ways in which all the things this Santa has done is bad?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's also funny to me because Santa is depicted in so much of children's literature as this incredibly kind man. um, But he's sort of... at at the root, like, sort of vindictive and judgy. Like, his whole thing is a naughty and nice list. Um, And that's another thing where, like, he, even though he's really into condemning naughty behavior, he never tells his reindeer to stop. And he's the one bullying them, too. So he's behaving really naughtily. Uh, And... Yeah, it's uh, Santa's kind of not all he's cracked up to be.
0: Yeah, I mean maybe the plus side of this is that it does show a more human <laughs> Santa than we're used to seeing.
1: Yeah, and, and it might encourage kids to question authority. Like, don't don't believe that just because Santa's in a position of power that he's going to always do the right thing. I love this.
0: I love how Rudolph turns into like <laughs> this social political <laughs> lesson for children. And I hope people <laughs> take heart and uh, tell their kids that you know Santa. Santa is just like us, too. (laughs) He he has magical powers, but he's also human, just like us. He's fallible, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Christina. And we will put a link to the post that Christina wrote on our show page, so everyone should definitely check it out. Thanks, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. Up next, She's Gotta Have It's Rada Blank, who's a Brooklyn, born and raised, playwright, screenwriter, producer, and... As you will soon find out, and you'll know why I'm laughing a little bit later, she's a rapper. (laughs) She and I had a very lively and candid conversation recently about her experience writing for Spike, some of the criticisms of the show, as well as her experiences being a woman of color in the writers' rooms for shows like Empire and The Get Down. Check it out. So in the studio today, I am pleased to be joined by one of the writers and producers on the new She's Gotta Have It on Netflix, Radha Blank. Welcome to the show, Rada.
2: Thanks for having me, Yeah, ladies. Awesome, beautiful, brown ladies. Thanks for having me. I'm Aww. glad to be here, <laughs> finally, because I'm a fan. I really am a fan of the show, so it's nice to be here. It's a we, full circle moment. That means so much to both of us.
0: really <laughs> appreciate it. And- I'll just tell people I had no idea she liked the show
2: before I reached out to her. Oh, no. this is not... No, and then can I just tell your listeners, people who don't know, like Aisha's eyebrow game, snatched. (laughs) I just have to plug your eyebrows. Like, they're amazing. (laughs)
0: Thank you. It's taken me many tries, and sometimes I still don't get it right. Today was a good day. Today, Today,
2: it's all the way right. Today was a good day. Just saying. Thank you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Radha, it's awesome to have you on because, like... She's gonna have it we We actually have already discussed it on a previous episode of this show, but like it's very much a it's a hot topic, and like pretty much any anything Spike Lee does. Very polarizing. He has that effect on people.
2: Go figure. Yes. But it's been that way for thirty years. And he's still good. He's, he's still, still the thing about Spike is he knows who he is and he knows what he wants. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that smells like freedom to me. Yes. For a black person who's an who calls himself an artist to make things and do it like fearlessly. Like, come on, we gotta give it up for Uncle Spike. It's one of the many things I love about him. I mean, listen, we all fight in that room, you know, because we're like family. But Uncle Spike, you know, I always say he's that uncle that's going to tell you if the potato salad is not tasting right, it's a little tangy. (laughs) He's going to let you know you might want to put a little molasses in that or whatever. (laughs) Um, but, uh, you know, so far, we're all like learning so much from each other. So mm-hmm. I just feel like it's a it's a blessing to be in that room.
0: Yeah. So. Well, I want to get into that. But first, mm-hmm. I want to ask you, what was your relationship to She's Gotta Have It before you even got involved with
2: the show? When the movie came out, I was two. Um, no, I'm just joking. Uh, when the movie came out, <laughs> I was about uh, mm-hmm. 15 years old and um, still wasn't old enough to see a film of that rating. And I had a bunch of cool cousins that would sneak me into everything from risk. Business too. She's got to have it, and I just remember watching it probably at the Film Forum in New York all those years ago, and just being blown away. Like, not I've never before that moment seen a black woman hold a space like that on a film screen. And so, even though I didn't understand all of the uh, the nature of the relationships, I mean, some of them made me blush mm-hmm. at the time. <laughs> um, I just was fascinated with this story, and so. The fact that we get to build on that character, flesh her out, you know, for 2017 is like pretty awesome. Because, I mean, even the film at the time was polarizing for people. Like some people thought, what an awesome, you know, um, addition to the landscape of feminism. And some people felt like she was objectified, you know, um, but... It, like everything Spike does, becomes a conversation starter. So um, it fascinated me. And it also planted, like, the seed of storytelling in me. Mm -hmm. Because, again, here's a character or a person I just had not seen dealt with that kind of attention. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I've probably watched it a number of times over the years. It's like... You know, Beloved by Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. This is a book I've probably read 35 times (laughs) (laughs) because each um, evolution of me into adulthood meant a different a level of understanding of that book, and that's how I feel about. She's got to have it. It's like as I get older, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand this dynamic. Mm -hmm. Um, I've even lived some of it too. But um,
0: well, so Spike
2: has talked about
0: one of the reasons why he decided to adapt it for. For Netflix, mm-hmm. one of them was his wife Tanya Lewis Lee, yes. who gave him the idea in the first place. But then he also felt he said in interviews that he felt as though like this needed an update. Did he approach you? How did you get involved? And you know what made you want to not only just become a writer on the show but also help produce the show?
2: I think it was just something that was uh, you know talked about in Grapevine. I'd heard about it, and. You know, I was one of those kids growing up in Brooklyn. Like, the minute I knew Spike had a production office on decal, I would stalk it Mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. So the minute I heard, I'd been working in TV, worked on a couple of shows. One rhymes with schmempire. Um, (laughs) You know, and so when I heard that the show was happening... I just had to find a way to get my reps to make the connection. What's funny is that Tonya Lewis Lee and I are connected through this film, Monster. So when, when I guess my name came across the, her desk, it was someone she was familiar with. But from my end, as a person born and raised in Brooklyn, um, and who's seen Brooklyn go through so many different identities, it just was something I felt like, oh, man, this would be the perfect platform to address some of the things that myself and the other writers have experienced mm-hmm. as Brooklyn natives. So, yeah, that that for me was the point of entry. And I remember um, the conversation, like the phone call I had with Spike, where I guess I was kind of auditioning for the job, and he had read one of my plays. And he he was so passionate <laughs> about the characters. And at that point, I said... I think I might. Maybe I have this job. I'm not sure because he's going in and like mm-hmm. really asking me probing questions. Um, but I think he wanted people in the room who were like passionate about the world that Nola lives in. Also, when I started to hear about who else was in the room, Lemon Anderson, Barry Michael Cooper, Joa Lee, Kay Lee, Issa Davis, who's like my playwriting sister, mm-hmm. Lynn Nottage, Nottage. Um, it was a no-brainer for me. I was just waiting for the call, waiting hoping that I got the job. Yeah. Um yeah. What was he like specifically excited about? This is he was excited for, <laughs> by the fact that I was from New York. Yeah. Because I think it's important to him like, you know, you see Spike when he shows up at a Knicks game, he's dressed from head <laughs> to toe in yes, orange is. and blue. Like yeah. he's the unofficial uh mascot of the Knicks. Mm-hmm. And so his New York pride like runs deep. And so I think Between him knowing I was from there and then reading some of my work that kind of just reflected, like, I think I have a play that represents every borough. And so that got me a long way. And then the fact that we could have this kind of discourse around characters, you know, I think for him it wasn't so much like, well, what can you bring to the table and what do you like or not like about the film that you would do differently. In the show. He just wanted to make, I think, a connection with someone who he felt, you know, had that hometown pride. It would mm. be very protective of a character from Brooklyn. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And so, um, I don't know. I need to ask him like what was going through his mind. But I, it was, it was a very, it was like a thirty-minute conversation, you know, and um, that was it. Mm. Mm. You know, talk about the writer's room, sure, because writer's rooms,
0: I feel like. We've had conversations with people on this show about it. I've written about it. And there have been plenty of articles about it. But, like, it still feels like such a sacred space. Um, And there's no way for anyone who's not in that room to know everything that's going on. Oh, child! But, like, what what are some of the the things that you guys were really passionate about that you batted ideas back and forth or argued about? Or, like, was there anything? Because especially... Considering Spike's wanting to sort of update this and, and, and the fact that we do see these characters who are more fleshed out than they ever were in the movie. Sure. Um, like, what were some things that you, like, fought hard for that you felt really passionate about that maybe you had to go to head-to-head with other
2: folks? Well, there were times, not many, but there were times where there were, you know, the room was split among gender lines. Mm-hmm. And... Um, if if I can just, guys, I don't mean to put your business out in front street, but there was a moment specifically where we were talking about assault, and mm-hmm. I don't want to spoil anything for someone, but it becomes a, an important moment in the in the uh, series. We were talking about assault, and you know, I think we were trying to the women were trying to make a point that it's a lot more um, common than maybe the men were aware of. And at one point, I just was like, okay, who in here has been assaulted before? all the women's hands went up. And it was like, it was a moment because all of my co-writing brothers got quiet and they looked around the room and they were like, oh, you know, there was a revelation there. And so I think it kind of made our, um, I don't know that it was an argument, but our desire to explore and really deeply excavate this idea of assault and the impact of assault, it made it, all the more real just to kind of do that little poll around the room mm-hmm. but I mean like we we have all these differing opinions differing experiences it wasn't you know the women weren't just one voice because we're all different kinds of women um, and you know we had basic you know, disagreements about when something should happen or how something should show up. But I think we all agreed that we were working to create as much human dimension to NOLA as possible. And if anything, we had so much, we had come up with so much stuff that if there was an argument, it was about what to put where and when to use something. But we had this whole arsenal, you know, um, of ideas um, to, you know, have the... A world for the character to play in. Um, so the fights were not like that deep, but a lot of times, you know, the the bonus to having as many women of color or black women in a room uh, for a show about a black woman character is that there is an affirmation there. You mm-hmm. know, um, I remember working on a show called The Get Down, and I was the only black woman in the room. And wait, wait, really? There's mm-hmm. only one black woman in yeah, the room? Yeah. Okay. That's for another podcast, girl. <laughs> but um. <laughs> There was only one black woman in the room, and I was that black woman. And Were you on season one or two, or both? Such a long story. Season one and two is like season one. True. You know, it got broken up into two separate seasons. And shout out to um, my uh, co-writing brothers on that show, who were like my advocates and biggest supporters, um, just in terms of being like the sole black woman in the room. There was another woman in the room, um... Uh, Lana Cho was my sister um, of the pen, but a lot of times I had to come into the room and choose which battle. Like, am I the black writer, or am I the female writer, or am I just the writer today? And when you have varied, uh, you know, voices, you know, varied uh, black women present, then it it just makes it easier to to, to add dimension. You know, it's not you don't have to come in and and fight. Like I I used to say it in the Empire Room. I hope I don't get in trouble, but not Empire. In uh, The Get Down, like, you know, the character was like a 17-year-old girl. And and when we would kind of go back and forth, I was like, well, I think I'm the only person in the room who's been a 17-year-old black girl. (laughs) So maybe that means something, you know, but when you have the room populated with um, variation on that black feminist thought or, or black, you know, woman mind then we can really create some depth around an idea you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um and it's not about fighting to to be her because you have several women in the room who are kind of echoing you know a variation on your thought you know what i mean
0: yeah uh, that it's disappointing to find that out about the get down but i also guess i don't find that that surprising because that is the
2: norm i think throughout most of hollywood absolutely this is our room was a rarity even empire was a rarity because there were so many Black women voices. I think there were six Black women writers in that room, mm-hmm. and and maybe still to this day have that same amount of... Um, which is why maybe people find Cookie to be their favorite character because like you have all these different people kind of adding different dimensions to this female Black female character. That rarely happens in any TV show where a Black, char- black woman character shows up right so the fact that we had as many in there kind of advocating and again like it's not to say we didn't bump heads we did because we all have different points of view but um, we all became each other's like support Mm -hmm. you know
0: I can I I can see that coming through I think through the characters because you know I actually I watched the original she's got to have it right before jumping into the new one Mm -hmm. and I, I hadn't seen the original in like over a decade. Um so I it was like a refresher, you know, I'd watched sure. clips, but I hadn't seen it from beginning to end in a while. So it was it was jarring to watch to see Nola and all of her characters get way more fleshed out and sort of have a background right. and the assault thing especially like I was I was happy to see that the show like it didn't just happen, you know. I don't think it's a spoiler to say like at the end of the first episode Something happens to her, um, and then she's dealing with it for the rest of the the series, um, both directly and indirectly. Right. And you know, I, I it's good to know that there were women in that room because I think that it, when you have men, it could easily just like be brushed aside, right. and not fall really by
2: happen. the wayside. No, it's our catalyst for yeah. the entire series, and it also is the thing that causes her to go inside and and. Um, It changes her point of view. Mm -hmm. It changes her voice as an artist, and um, I think one of the things I'm most proud of is um, the "My Name Isn't" um, campaign that's grown out of the series. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, can
0: you talk about? Because I know the artist that you use, uh, Tatiana Fazliza Day. Yes, I think I pronounced that Tatiana. Yes,
2: she she has a a street campaign called "Stop Telling Women to Smile." Yes, and Spike. What's so awesome about him is that over the years, he's just kind of connected to young artists in various mediums. And I think he always was fascinated by her work. And so when it came time to creating the the visual storytelling around Nola as an artist, Tatiana was an easy consult. Like she was in the room with us and she created that she created all of Nola's artwork. Um, but our My Name Isn't is absolutely the 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 child of stop telling people women to smile mm-hmm. and um but what i think is beautiful is that now you know there's this conversation about harassment and the hashtag there's a meme where women can actually change the um uh change the meme according to their experience with uh sexual harassment and there's just this whole line lo- this whole online community responding to this issue of harassment that was born out of the show mm-hmm. so the my name isn't um campaign is like another way to keep the character alive but most importantly it's like creating a platform for this issue it's not just this dramatic plot point in the series this is this thing and i think it's also a cousin to the hashtag uh, me too movement right. you know what i mean like Um, they are married to each other and I I just think it's just it's a great time like to I just think social media becomes this awesome place this market where we can kind of just exchange ideas and have visibility and get new language around things that have either been taboo or you know people were just too afraid or ashamed to address Mm. Um, so yeah it's one of the things I'm most proud of um, coming out of the series Mm. yeah one of the things, I, so
0: I have a couple of questions I want to ask you, like sure. for my own. I'm curious about, but then also, you know, there's been, and and also when it comes to critiques of the show, um, one of which was that this this idea that the premise itself is sort of outdated. The idea that a black woman having multiple boyfriends is like, it's it's pretty common. <laughs> I think I think Samuel Jackson Jackson actually like had a quote in this profile of Spike. Um, in New York Times, where it was like, that's not taboo anymore. Like, everyone has three lovers. I was like, eh, I don't know if everyone has really three lovers. Really? are <laughs> mine.
2: Sam, can you please help me locate my three lovers, please? Because I, I've, not, I've not enjoyed them yet. So please, tell them to call me. Look ahead. Sorry. No, no.
0: Um, but so, I'm. What what is, like, what sort of personal experiences did, did and I'm not trying to, have you or Put anyone on else front street yeah but like in in terms of like the way that she's depicted um it like a lot of it seemed to me slightly unrealistic in that i like the whole oh i'm gonna invite my three boyfriends to dinner and they won't know that they're going and then they'll all accept the fact that they're there um i've always found that kind of hard to like is that the way people really really are and i know people who have who are Either I wouldn't call her polyamorous, but I know people who are polyamorous. Sure. I know people who are in open relationships and who do, have all different types of triads or whatever. But that sort of thing where Nola is like, kind of just doing her own thing, and these guys kind of go along with it. Yeah.
2: Did you see the original movie? Yes, because you notice know how the original movie ends. No, I know. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I, yeah. But but
0: the thing is, is that like to me at least. Uh, in in the 80s that would seem more taboo now whereas this i f- i guess these are two questions i have sure like did you did did people in the room have experience having other you know like relationships or like where where were you drawing from for inspiration on that besides the original movie like did yeah. you talk to other people who were in these relationships um you know where where did
2: that come from sure well First of all, like, you know, I think with the show, Spike, there were certain things that he wanted to carry over into the series. And, you know, there's a reason he wrote and directed the first episode and wrote and directed the final one in that the first and final episodes are kind of mirroring what happens in her journey. And I think that he wanted that from the very beginning. I think for us as writers, you know, we often wanna find a reason to justify something like this. So there was a lot of conversation and people spilling their tea <laughs> on the table. Um, you know, maybe it wasn't three, but maybe it was two. But yeah, I think yeah. I think I think the thing to remember about the show in the series is that we're following a person who's on a journey and who for, you know, uh better or worse, follows the uh instruction of her therapist to confront her demons. Does she do it in the right way? (laughs) I don't know. But the fact that these men stuck around, to me, is more telling of her hold on them. That she is someone that, you know, for whatever reason, they've accepted this, um, you know, what she's presented to them in the end. I hope that whoever's listening has seen the scene and we're not completely like, you know, uh, presenting a spoiler to you. But like, I, I feel like, to me, the, the, the it and the she's got to have it The series is about expanding on that. And when I think of that scene, I think of a person who is who has got to have like transparency. And for her as a character, this was her best way of doing it, putting it all out there. And I I think it was a test. I think she was waiting to see what they would do. And they all stick around because they are men with penises who want to stick their uh, excuse me, put their flag (laughs) Have their flag be the last flag standing on that particular planet called NOLA. Um, So, yes, I get where people might say, well, it's far-fetched. I've never done a Prince dance number with my lovers either. You know, that's the thing about Prince is, I mean, about Spike is that he's about expanding the the parameters of reality. He likes to play in this very musical space. Yes, Yes. And, you know, once all of us were like on board with it, we just had fun. You Mm -hmm. know, like, she did, they were ingesting drugs, so there's that. Um, Oh, yeah, I forgot about that But, yeah, yeah. I think that the the last episode is kind of more on the fantastical musical, I mean, they were talking penises, you know what I mean? Like, everything about the episode was, like, fantastical and unbelievable, but apparently this is what happens in Nola's world, you know? And so, you know, I don't know if we'll be building on that tone in the next season, but... I do is know. There, is there a next season? Do we girl, you and me both okay, are waiting so we for the phone confirmed. to ring. Okay. We haven't confirmed it. Um, I mean, Netflix would be smart to renew it. But, you know, at this point, I think if there wasn't, like, God, please, I'm just saying, if there wasn't, the season ended as Spike wanted it to on this really this surreal moment. So, mm-hmm. yes, it does feel like, girl, come on. That's not even going to happen. But in Nola's world, it does. And I'm I'm happy that we get to explore uh, the world of a black character where something ridiculous would happen. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know if you ever used to see this show called The Larry... Not Larry David, Larry Sanders, Larry Sanders show yeah. where, he, you know, sometimes he's talking to camera. Sometimes it turns into a dream sequence. Sometimes. it, And I just feel like, wow, we've gotten to really expand and play with black narrative in that way. Mm-hmm. So I like that it creates this conversation. You know, to me, again, it goes back to freedoms. Mm-hmm. And this is what Harriet wanted. <laughs> she wanted us to have this discourse about whether or not it's realistic that Nola's three lovers would stick around in the end, and so you know I'm excited to see where we go from there.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. to me, honestly, and you know, Aaron and I debated this in our in our other episode that we mentioned earlier. I, well, actually, we both agreed that we thought that the relationship with Opal was the like the best, um, just because especially coming from the original where Opal's character is not exactly the best. She's a
2: little rough. She's rough.
0: She's a little predatory. A little predatory, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> and she is the sole lesbian character so like that comes with that entire right. all of that weight. And so seeing her um be that the most intimate seeing nola be the most intimate with her like in that way on on the series like what was that conversation of creating that character like did spike like what did spike say about what he wanted to see and how did or did he say anything
2: well here's the here's the thing you know spike knew how he wanted it to be to end he knew how he wanted it to, to begin he knew how he wanted it to end he would often respond to things if he didn't like something he wasn't gonna he wasn't If it didn't work for him, it didn't work. Mm. But he gave each writer kind of like the role of being the parent of that episode. And so I think if people love Opal, then that's a testament to Issa Davis's writing because that's when we first meet her. And just like I felt very, very like um, attached and concerned for the presentation of Shemeca. I think Issa felt the same way about Opal. And I just feel like, you know, we did have the film to compare, like we we did have something that we were working. I don't want to say working against, but like we were working toward humanizing Opal and making sure she, um, even if Nola was like, you know, uh, t- treating Opal as an alternative, she wasn't. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's about ten years age difference between them. Um And, you know, Opal as a mom and as a horticulturist with a garden in Brooklyn, <laughs> you know, she just has a, a much clearer um, vision of herself. And I think that that is why, like, it just feels like a softer place to land. The men, in a lot of people's opinion, seem to want to possess Nola. And Opal just seemed to want to love her um, and was even um mature enough to say, like, look, Boo, I don't think you can handle this. You know, whereas the men, as complicated as the relationships were, they were still trying to get something from Nola. Although some people say Mars seemed the least yeah. Um, possessive. Well, yeah, of I her.
0: I liked I liked Mars char- Mars's character. Yeah. Because I mean he still was very possessive, but he also he's the one who encouraged her in her art and was very protective of her as right. well. So I mean, he he comes with him being also just an immature, like, tr- he's clearly supposed to be, like, 21, 22, young. Somewhere in there. A man-child. Very, yes, yes, a man-child. So he's, he, and men are just always behind women by a few years, so. Um,
2: you know, Aisha, you better go in. You better speak <laughs> your truth, girl. Oh, come on. We all know Direct this. all letters of hate to Aisha Harris at, let me stop. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but we all know it's true, yeah. And and
2: he's especially like you know he's the
0: wildest character out of all of them. And and I still what does he do? He's he has a job. He works
2: in the the bike. Uh, he works in the bike the, slash coffee shop, right? Yeah. Right. yeah so
0: yeah. Yeah. anyway, he's employed. He's employed, right? Uh, but he's he's got his own things to figure out. But yeah, I thought you know his character was very. He still he seemed to be the one out of all three of the men to be the most like. Even though he's – I still don't understand necessarily I, – actually, I think that's what she sees in him is that he's very
2: supportive of her. He's, a, her he's very supportive. He's also very free-spirited. Mm-hmm. You know, like – I mean, she says it when Dr. Jameson asks her, like, well, what is it that you like? Well, he just makes me laugh till my sides hurt. And um, I don't know. I think that Dr. Jameson is on to something about, like – She's building the perfect mate from all of these people. Yeah. But there's got to be some kind of casualty or, you know, they fall out from doing something like that. And that's what I think the series is exploring is like, who's going to jump out first? Who's going to tag out first? Like, because it's, it's just a lot knowing yeah. that your lover has two or three other lovers, you know? Um, well, I'm team Opal all the way. I think a lot of people <laughs> are team Opal. And I have to tell you, you know, when we wrote the series... I know the room, one of the last discussions we had was that this Thanksgiving dinner is going to end, everyone's going to leave, and then the bell was going to ring. And we don't know who it is. So the fact that it ended up being Opal was such a nice, pleasant surprise for all of us who, who weren't necessarily deeply connected to that episode. And Wait, so you didn't even, you didn't know It until was a you... surprise ah. for, for us. I mean, we knew before okay, okay. the viewing audience did. Right. But as a room, as a collective, the last discussion was like ding dong, you know, who is it? And that's it. And so Spike was the one who decided. Right. It. Okay. And I have a feeling that Tonya, Lewis Lee had a little influence on him, but it was just so surprisingly refreshing to see that spike and the storytelling was open to going in that direction. Mm-hmm. A couple more questions. Sure.
0: You mentioned Shemekha. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about
2: Shemeka? Can we talk about Shemeka portrayed by the amazing China Lane? Yes. She
0: is really great. Yeah. Um. I. I took some issues with some of the the butt explosions. Yeah. <laughs> so, did you conceive of her? Because she's actually a character who was not in the original. No. And that was another thing I did like about it was that yay nola has girlfriends like it's not just you know about her and this man and then her and opal it's she has like actual friends outside right. of that right um so can you talk a bit about Jamaica and sure. you know uh, what my sense i got was that she's sort of supposed to represent in a way um women feeling very insecure about them bod- their bodies and being like, having all these outside forces. Sure. I'm particularly curious about the running, sort of, like, reality show that's happening in the background. Mm -hmm. She asked for it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Can Mm -hmm. can you talk about that? Sure.
2: So, I believe Shemekha as a character was the brainchild of Barry Michael Cooper. Um, Barry and Spike created, like, the initial, like, um, planted the initial seeds of these characters. Barry also created Rockaletta Moss. I just have to say that, because people Mm -hmm. seem to love that character as well. Mm -hmm. And... I personally was happy to see a character like Shemecha in the series because I feel like for the most part, Characters like Shemeca are added for color. You know, they have somebody in there snatching dreams, talking like a banshee girl and all of that, but not many layers. And so the fact that this, you know, exposed Brooklyn artist is friends with a girl who talks with her hands and, like, has a young daughter and whatever works at this, you know, hot and trot club was, like, really appealing to me because the challenge is, like, well, how do we make this person, take this person beyond, like, those very colorful character traits? And so, you know... We learned early on that she was going to have this, um, you know, is going to have to confront her body image. And again, lots of conversation, lots of research, lots of looking at actual, you know, butt implant things going wrong. And, you know, first of all, with a butt explosion, I just have to say, like if you know Spike's films, you know they are going to be some very shocking moments. So that can't surprise us. But in the scheme it of things... It was It was shocking. But if you saw, you know, Crooklyn or, you know, um, Mo' Better Blues, there's always a moment in those films where you're mm-hmm. sitting in it and you clench your butt cheeks because you're like, what the f- just happened? You know, but that's, that's Uncle Spike. You know, like he likes to shake it up a bit. Um, but I do feel like just in terms of her track... Um, as a character, you know, whether it's love and hip-hop or, you know, Atlanta Housewives, Black women on these reality shows are morphing themselves. I don't know if you've seen Neely leaks, the first season of of Atlanta Housewives and seen her now with the Michael Jackson nose. Like, it's just what women are doing, especially the more affluent they get. They Mm -hmm. seem to be more weave, more nose, more this. And so... I don't know. I think a lot of us just found it interesting that this was a character who was actually thinking about and then going to go through with some kind of procedure um, to alter her appearance. Um, You know, Kay Michelle, Okay, she just recently admitted she she admitted that she probably shouldn't have gotten a butt lift, but that she also shouldn't have gotten the injections, which she got in a hotel room. And Kay Michelle has been performing for quite a while. so I'm sure she's had some coins. But for some reason... I don't know if it's about accessibility, if it's about a hotel room is kind of hidden from public. It's not like a doctor's office where you're, you know, clearly someone can see you going in there. Um, Well, also just like I, I. Well,
0: okay, I'm not a doctor, but like I imagine that butt implants generally are just not good to get like it feels like the butt is different from the boobs. I don't know why. I think but people like,
2: do procedures all the time. True. And I guess for Shemeca this was just the easy way for her. Um, but it was important to kind of lay the, uh, the terrain that there was a seed of in- insecurity around the painting and how her body was depicted then. Um, yeah, so I feel like, you know, we were using various genres of storytelling to get at the same thing. Aside from her
0: relationship with Opal... What do you hope to see, where do you hope to
2: see Nola go in the second season? Um, I definitely, you know, like I said before, I think the season... I've said it many times before, I should say that the series was about expanding on the it and she's got to have it. And so I'm excited to see what happens in her life as an artist. I was raised by um, an artist who worked many jobs as an art teacher, art curator, you know, doing murals in children's hospitals, all kinds of things to support herself so that she can still call herself an artist. So I do have a stake in seeing what manifests there like what is the result of being in that um diastopian show that Clorinda curated you know what is on the other side of that what kind of success and what is she now defining as success because she had i think what is a huge rites of passage for any artist is a bad review and so like who are you going to be on the other side of that and does she get to confront does her work at least get to confront this reviewer again and um yeah, so that's what I'm. I'm really curious about. I mean, of course, I'm curious about what happens with her lovers, but because we've expanded on what it is, um, where her art is concerned, I really am curious of of how she will rise and fall and fail in that world. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm. I think I I, I want to see way more of that. The art, um, the artist idea, because I, I feel like that's something we don't really have right now in TV is, like, black women as artists. Like, to some extent, we see a little bit of that in um, Rutina uh, Wesley's character. um, Who's, like, an activist, artist. Writer, yeah, activist, writer. Writer, Uh, journalist. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. Rutina Wesley's character on, on Queen Sugar, she... I mean, I guess
2: she's less of an artist, but she has that sort of artist. She's a creative spirit. spirit. Right. And she's a, she's an important cog in the wheel of the storytelling. Right. I just have to tell you, Aisha, I've been writing for a very, very long time. And I've always been pitching characters that mm-hmm. are artists and always told there's no place for that in TV. Like no one wants to see a character who is an artist because the assumption is that the artist is going to have the same struggle like Not getting their art recognized, not getting their art recognized. But Mm -hmm. I think what the series proves is that, you know, as an artist, it's hard enough figuring out how to define oneself. Like, Nola is going through it around her identity. Like, when the street campaign got exposed, like, yes, Clorinda and many people who are thinking, who have her mindset are like, girl you just blew up overnight you should be happy mm-hmm. but for a young woman who wants who's trying to define herself as an artist and still figure out what that it what is what that is for her this is not that does that's not freedom to her mm-hmm. you know she's kind of being told what path she should take and so it just it feels good to you know a kind of help develop a world around a, a main character who is an artist? Mm-hmm. It just it it doesn't show up for us like that most times. Like our characters are usually like working class or they're judges and lawyers, yeah. you know, but this person who is going down this path, um, even the same thing with um, Issa Rae's character on Insecure, like how many of us have worked in after school programs, that would be me. I've worked for in 20 a summer years. Camp. Okay. Ugh. And so a lot <laughs> of us who have these other ideas and ambitions, that's what you did to support yourself. And yeah. yet before these shows, I have not seen that. You know, so even the same thing with, with Atlanta, the fact that, you know, on that show, um, Donald's character is like, pursu- have these musical pursuits around his cousin, Paperboy. Like, we just don't see that. It's usually something that... Is on paper seems more accessible, and usually it's like my question is, well, who's making that decision? Who are the gatekeepers who decide? Like, well, that doesn't—that's not a realistic character. The funny thing is now, when you go in to pitch things in Hollywood, they all want Atlanta, of course, a show about a guy pursuing (laughs) artistic. Because it was a hit. Whereas if someone else, I guarantee you, if it wasn't Donald Glover, a.k.a. Childish Gambino, who at the time was kind of a star, if some other guy walked in and was like, hey, here's a show about a guy who's trying to manage his cousin who's a rapper. Silence. Whereas now, yeah, well, we want something like Atlanta. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just very interesting how the tides change. I mean, it's still a lot of work that we have to do, but the door has opened on, like— just a myriad of possibilities around black life. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So I'm excited for the time. Yeah. Nice.
0: Yeah. And my last question, sure. which I know you know, because you've listened to our show many times. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> when is the last time you saw something uh, that you were not involved in? So not She's Gotta Have It, right. not, not Empire, uh, where you felt as though
2: you were represented? Um thought I knew the answer to this. Oh, I love it. You have to um, think. <laughs> Tiffany Haddish. Um, I watched her on The View the other day and I was in tears because I, too, have a sordid past, a, a, you know, a rough childhood. And the fact that she has like permeated, you know, that past and is using her humor to connect to people and also inspire them to kind of be bigger than their past, I'm, I'm really inspired by her. And I feel like I'm sure there are a lot of sisters who look at her and feel like they see themselves. I definitely mm-hmm. see myself in her. The fact that she is able to laugh. Were you that crazy on your
0: girls trips? Is that like... Um,
2: I wasn't <laughs> quite that crazy, but out of all the four <laughs> characters, I probably was her. Because um, I do like to drink a good drink. You know what I'm saying? But um, some no absence. Yeah, I thing. just feel like her personal story, like the fact that she... You know, is able to get people to laugh at some very unfunny things uh, around, you know, surviving child abuse and pain and all this stuff. She she feels like my sister. Every time I see her, I feel like I see a part of myself. And mm-hmm. she just, like, she she's also not apologizing for who she is. She's not perfect. She's not prim. She's not proper. She's a little loud, a little ghetto, whatever. Um, but she's herself. And I feel like it just gives us more permission to... To To be ourselves and, and attain a certain level of success mm-hmm. as storytellers. So she's my hero.
0: Tiffany. I love her. Come on the show. Please do. Girl, you going to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Will we allow that, Marilyn? It's not a movie or TV show. But... Oh,
2: absolutely. Okay,
0: good. All right, good. Sometimes we're like, sometimes people are just like, uh, we've had someone who said... um something they were in and I was like you can't do
2: that <laughs> oh you can't because I was gonna plug my movie but that's okay <laughs> but no but I it, just being honest like I'm shooting my first feature next year um, because I haven't seen myself exactly like a new uh, you know I grew up on Woody Allen films like where there's is not that a story, where is that story where's that storytelling for the black women from New York I haven't seen it so I'm gonna create it myself but you know I I don't know that I've seen myself a forty-something year-old black woman represented in um, film or TV. Maybe um, uh, Tracy Ellis Ross. Mm. She's very funny and witty, and she she just did that great uh, talk. I think at the glamour a glamour event, talking about how you know women of a certain age are pressured to have partnership and to be mothers. And when it hasn't shown up for you at the age of 44, well, then what is your value? So that was very inspiring. I'm sorry. I'm going on and on and on. But I guess she's another person who I've. But I haven't really seen many film roles where I've been reflected, mm-hmm. to be honest. No, so that's We totally have to fair. create them. We, we've also gotten
0: that a few times where they're like, I don't have anything. And I'm like, this is really sad. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, but we if, have to but do if that's something true for about you. It. you know?
2: Yeah. And that's why I'm shooting my film, because I just feel like. Are you directing? I am. Writing, writing. writing, starring, directing. It's a film that's come down the Sundance pipeline. We're shooting it early next year. It's called The 40-Year-Old Version, V-E-R-S-I-O-N, about a black woman playwright who's down on her luck, who feels like the only way she can salvage her voice as an artist is to become a rapper at 40. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Nice. So, And it's all... Based on truth, and so yeah, I feel like if you don't see it, you have to create it, and that's what I feel like Issa Rae has done. That's what we're doing with this series. That's what Atlanta is. It's like we're no longer waiting for other people to present us. We're just using whatever avenue we can, whether it's online, digital, you know, theater. You
0: well, I don't know? think we ever waited. I think it's just now there are ways for us to do it. It like we don't have to go through the traditional, the way traditional anymore. channels. We, Absolutely, we have the digital. Uh, so do you do you want to spit
2: some raps, some rhymes for us? Really sure, quick? I will. You might have to edit some stuff out, but um, I'll just do how I I'm just I assuming, I'm assuming yeah, you're nah, a rapper. I, I am a rapper. Um, yo, where my period at? Oh shit, there it go, right next to belly bloating in the spotty flow. Yo, where my damn house keys, why my lower legs hurt? Attica lock legs like Attica word. Yo, why my ass always horny, why I always gotta pee? Why the young boy on the bus offer his seat to me? Why my skin so dry, why my yawning right now? Why them AARP niggas sending shit to my house? Why my ass so impatient, but I like them young bucks. But 10 o'clock come around and I'm too tired to fuck. Why my knees be writing checks that my back can't cash. Why I think I'm going fart, but i am going ask her other plans. Why most hip hop got me feeling so much older, yo. When the fuck this loudest song gonna be over? Yeah, I tried to dance hard, but my knees straight caught me. Cause yo, this is 40 niggas. This is 40. that's that's Rodimus Prime yeah yes (laughs) sorry I know we came here to talk about she's gotta have it but no I love it I wouldn't be a New York artist if I didn't try to plug myself yes (laughs) yes and I'll invite you guys to the next show absolutely yes but yeah like if we don't see it we have to create it, yeah. And even that character as Rodimus Prime was born out of adversity, being fired off of, you know, a film job, and 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 then having the industry say, "Well, then you should do this job and you should do this job." And it's just like, no. How about I create what it is I want to do? I'm not saying I'm paid and rich off of this stuff, but it's all about artistic freedom. And like you're right, we can't. If if it's if it's not about waiting for someone, it's about creating the platform our, ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know. So, anyway. Well, thank you.
0: <laughs> thank you so much, Rada.
2: Thanks for having me, The guys. rapper, playwright, screenwriter. I love the show. show. It was love great guys. having you on. Thanks for having me.
0: That's our show. You'll find links to everything we discussed on our show page. Represent is produced by the lovely, amazing Marilyn Williams. Our excellent social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. And our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk-soul band, Midtown Social. Next week, we've got our final episode of the year. We'll look back on the good and the bad in representation in 2017 with some old friends and familiar voices. Until next time.